Last Tuesday over supper, um, a few of us were chatting about a whole range of things and uh, Will Colwell actually raised the topic of something that he'd seen on the news that night last week. It involved a pretty scary landing, or rather an attempted landing, by a jet at Hamburg Airport in really, really windy weather. In case you missed it, here it is. For nervous flyers everywhere, this might be the time to look away. Because this is a plane that's just about to have the nearest of near misses. Coming in to land at Hamburg, buffeted by storm force winds, the pilot of this Lufthansa jet is clearly battling against almost impossible odds. As he struggles to maintain his line, the wheels are down, but the storm is up. And this is the frightening effect. In a split second, the pilot realises that the only way out is up. So he throttles open the engines to full power and pulls away for a second attempt. Looking closely again, the left wing appears to come within inches of being slammed into the runway. Disaster avoided by the narrowest of margins. Now last Tuesday as we talked about that, very cool little footage, the conversation sort of went a bit like this. Firstly, it started off with, wouldn't it be scary to be one of those 130 people on board looking out your window to see the wing scraping along the ground on the tarmac? The conversation moved to, how good are the pilots to actually maintain control of all of that? To which the conversation then turned to, how amazing is it that a plane that big can just get tossed around by the wind? To which the conversation finally settled down on, how amazingly powerful must God be? Because that sort of wind is just a nothing to him. Psalm 18 says that God only has to blow his nostrils, blow through his nose, and the very foundations of the earth are laid bare. We are impressed by a wind like that. That is nothing to the God of all creation. And that's where I'd like us to start our thinking tonight. I'd like us to think about the power and ability of the one true and living God. The sheer capability of the God of all the universe. Nothing compares to him. No one comes close to be having to do what God can do. No matter how powerful you reckon God is, I can guarantee that when you stand before him in heaven, you will be absolutely amazed and utterly dwarfed by how big he really is the authority and dominion of the one true living God, which is pretty much what tonight's reading was all about. That little section of Acts where Paul's visiting the city of Ephesus, it's a section that is really there to showcase the authority and the power of God, and in particular to showcase the power and authority of his son and king, the risen Christ. To showcase the power and authority of the risen Christ, to whom, remember, God has given all authority and power. It's a little section tucked away there in Acts shows to just convict us of the greatness of Jesus. Let me show you four ways that this little passage does that. And firstly, in one respect, the very fact that Paul is visiting Ephesus is a reflection of Jesus' greatness. 
Because hopefully you might remember that last week we've noticed that the spread of the gospel last week started to pick up speed, courtesy of that very progressive church down in Antioch. Uh, They've decided to export the gospel overseas, remember. And last week we saw that uh, Paul and Barnabas took the gospel on the road through Cyprus and Galatia. Here's a reminder of where they went last week. Well, through the next few chapters in Acts 16 through to 21, in one sense, it's pretty much more of the same. Paul heads off on his second trip, this time without Barnabas. And firstly, he heads up through the, through the same sorts of country, checking out how the churches are going. Along the way, he actually, by the way, picks up a young ministry apprentice that he's heard about called Timothy. Having picked up Timothy, they then uh, head inland across Philippi, Thessalonica, Athens, Corinth, lots of places that you might be aware of that he writes letters to later on. Eventually they end up at Ephesus, although it's really only to drop off a husband and wife ministry team called Priscilla and Aquila. Paul himself just drops them off, keeps going. Eventually, on this trip, he ends up back at Antioch via Caesarea. That's his second trip, home on furlough. In one sense, even just to pause now, the very fact that Paul is doing this is a measure of the greatness of Jesus. I mean, the fact that he's on the road again, because the first time he was on the road, the red trip, that, that wasn't without trouble, was it? Remember that? He got beaten to a pulp, he was left for dead, he had people lying about him, throwing him into prison, mocking him, and, and he's up for more? He's on the road again, doing it once more, because such is the greatness of Jesus that despite what he's been through, he's still determined to get out there and help people hear about him. Indeed, more than that, back in chapter 9, when when Paul first became a Christian, Jesus told Paul that he was going to be his chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings. And you see, when the risen Christ tells you to do something, then disobedience is not an option. And so here's Paul on the road again, carrying the name of Jesus before the Gentiles and their kings, just as the risen Christ told him to. Haven't quite reached our Bible reading yet, though, because after this second trip, Paul heads off again for a third one, and this time he heads pretty well in a beeline straight for Ephesus. What's more, once he gets there, he stays there for over two years, which is very uncharacteristic. Uh, Paul usually keeps on the move. Here at Ephesus, he stays around for two years. And the book of Acts reflects that because very little is mentioned of all the other places that he visits on this third trip. Uh, Quite a lot of places that he keeps going after Ephesus heads all the way back to Jerusalem this time. But really, all those other places, they hardly rate a mention. It's Ephesus that receives all the attention. Now, there's a couple of reasons for that, I suspect. Firstly, Ephesus is a very important city at the time. It's on trade routes. It's pretty much the capital city of that that part of the world. I mean, just looking at the map, it's pretty much at the centre of everything, isn't it? Ephesus is the dubbo of the Roman province of of Asia. (laughs) Plus, it's a big tourist town, very big tourist town. The temple of the god Artemis, which was one of the seven great wonders of the ancient world, that's at Ephesus. All of which makes Ephesus a, a very strategic place to build a solid church there. So you get a lot of detail about it in the book of Acts. And perhaps it's specifically that Ephesus is such a strategic town that what happens in Ephesus 
is you get lots and lots of examples of the power of the risen Christ. For example, what about that strange baptism that Karen read to us in those opening verses? Back to verse 1 of chapter um, 19. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior, arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples, that is, disciples of Apollos, and asked them, Do you re- did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, no, we've never heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, that's John the Baptist, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him. That's Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptised into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. Now, look, I'd be lying if I, didn't, if I said that everything is crystal clear in those verses. Um, it's not quite sure what's going in here. Are these disciples truly Christian before Paul meets them? Um, if they are Christians, how come they haven't received the Holy Spirit? which is the very clear pattern in the rest of the book of Acts. But they're called disciples, which in every other instance of the word in Acts refers to fully converted Christians. What we've got here seems a bit unusual. Whatever those unusual unusual things are, what the text wants us to see pretty clearly is that it's only when they hear about Jesus that completeness comes. That's what's being driven home here. The passage isn't interested in giving us a detailed theological description of what these disciples didn't quite get right Uh, commentators love getting excited about that sort of stuff the text actually just wants us to get excited about the fact that it's when jesus they hear of him that completeness comes whatever they got wrong it's only when jesus it's only jesus that makes it come right jesus's baptism coming under his leadership is what matters most even the great john the baptist has his place compared to jesus Such is the power and authority of this risen Christ. That's driven home all the more when you start to hear all about these miracles that happen in Ephesus. Verse 11. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sink and their illness was cured and evil spirits left them. Now it's very interesting in all the other cities that Paul visits you hardly ever get any mention of miracles at all. That's different. Here at Ephesus, Luke deliberately records and wants to draw our attention to all these miracles that are happening because they're drawing attention to the greatness of Jesus. Heck, they're impressive things. Just touching a hanky is making people better. Touching my hanky will have the opposite effect on you. But such is the greatness of Jesus that remarkable things are happening in Ephesus. It gets all the stronger when those poor guys, the sons of Sceva that we heard about, they're trying to cash in on the miracles. Uh, Verse 13, some Jews went around driving out evil demons, trying to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Well, seven sons of Sceva, chief priests, were doing that. And one day, an evil spirit answered them, well, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, who are you? And the, people, and the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them, gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. It's a weird sort of event, but it's a telling event. Because the sons of Sceva figure, you see, that they can use Jesus a bit like a magic word. That they can contain him and use him for their own purposes. That they can treat Jesus a bit like a genie out of a bottle. And Jesus will pop out and do whatever they want him to do. But he's way bigger than that. You cannot manipulate Jesus to do what you want him to do. He's way too powerful for that. 
And, and to think that you can somehow harness his power to, for your good, that, that's only going to get you into a lot of trouble. For the Skeever boys, it left them naked and bleeding, running away from the house. And as you work through the text, this picture of Jesus just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Paul's very obedience in being on the road again to tell people about him. The fullness of Jesus' baptism as opposed to John's baptism. The miracles. The power and authority of Jesus is just growing and growing and growing, especially when you reach the event of a riot that breaks out in Ephesus in verse 23. Now, for the sake of time, we didn't go on and read it, but essentially, if you go home and look through, what happens is that you meet a silversmith named Demetrius who figures out that if people keep becoming Christians, his business is going to suffer because they're going to stop ordering little silver idols off him. And so what he does is he starts a riot against the Christians in Ephesus. And a whole bunch of people take to the streets, although some of them aren't quite sure why. If you look across at verse 32, we read about this riot, that the assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. It's a classic scene. And as you keep reading through it, the whole thing just becomes a complete debacle. It is utter chaos. And it becomes almost laughable in the way it ends because what happens is that the town clerk hops up, says that they better keep the noise down or else they'll be in trouble for disturbing the peace, at which point everyone just sort of looks at each other and says, oh, okay, and they all go home. It's weird. It's an incredible anticlimax and... And it makes you laugh, and that's exactly what it's meant to do. Because think about it. Here we are in the great city of the god Artemis. Here we are in the city of the temple that's one of the seven wonders of the world. And who are Artemis' champions? Who are defending the god Artemis? Who are the supporters of the great Artemis? Well, it's just a ragtag bunch of rioters, most of whom don't even know why they're there, and those who do know why they're there, they're only there for the money. Meanwhile, the supporters of the risen Christ, they're healing sick people with their handkerchiefs. They're casting out evil spirits. And there is no comparison. No wonder the name of the Lord, it says in verse 17, was held in high honour, it's because this risen Christ, this Jesus, is seen in a league of his own. And if you want to talk about authority and you want to talk about power, you can forget Artemis and you can forget strong winds and you can forget anyone and anything. You cannot top Jesus. And that's the point of the passage. Paul hitting the road again in obedience the inadequacy of John's Baptist compared to Jesus's, the extraordinary miracles, the inability to contain Jesus, the patheticness of the followers of other gods, it's all driving the same point. The incredible power and authority of Jesus. And it's all screaming the same question to you and I. What are we doing about the power and authority of Jesus? Because he's just as great here and now in Dubbo as he was back there in Ephesus. So to what extent is our life falling into line to the risen Christ? So you notice what the Ephesians do when they're confronted by the greatness of Jesus, or at least what some of them do. Verse 17. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honour. 
Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A a number who had practised sorcery brought their scrolls together and burnt them publicly. And when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachma. That's how you respond to this risen Christ. You fear him and you submit to him. And you submit big time. 50,000 drachmas, we're talking the equivalent of $4 million worth of scrolls. And it goes up in smoke. As these people burn the stuff that they thought used to give them power because now they're bending the knee at a higher power, the power of Jesus. And that's what you do when you come face to face with the power and the authority of the risen Christ. You weigh up your life, you confess your sin and you just submit to him. Which carries with it a challenge and a comfort. The challenge is, in all, if I can gently ask it, have you done that? Have you submitted to this risen Christ? Have you personally realised how enormous he is? And submitted to him? I've got a mate, Craig Tucker, who pastors a church in Sydney, uh, in Jermoyne actually, and he used to run a Bible study group in which where there was one guy who was struggling with pornography. And one day, enough was enough, he knew he had to do something, and one Sunday morning, just as all the little old ladies were coming out of the church building, he arrived with a stack of porno magazines, piled them on the front lawn of the church, doused them in petrol and set them alight. Now, according to Craig, some of the little old ladies still haven't quite recovered from this. Not their idea of what church is all about. Smelled awful. The black patch of the lawn took months to grow back. But it was decisive. Very decisive. Perhaps more decisive than some of us are. Because if you really understand how great this risen Christ is, that is what you do. You just submit. It's suicide not to. Have you got stuff you need to burn in your life? Are there some stuff that you are just valuing more than your obedience to this risen Christ? Because whatever it is, we've got to confess it, we've got to get rid of it, and we've just got to wake up to the power and authority of this Jesus and and be seized with fear and submit to him. I mean, it's crazy to be impressed by a strong wind and not be impressed and to treat the risen Christ with flippancy and indifference. He's infinitely more powerful than that. But look, that's the challenge. There's a comfort here as well, can I say? And that is that because Jesus is as great as he is, when you do submit, when we do follow him, that actually puts you in a very, very safe place. There will not be anything you will need in this life that Jesus cannot give you. There will be nothing you need that he can't give you. There will be no situation that he cannot get you through. There will be no temptation that he can't give us the power to resist. There will be no decision that he can't give us the wisdom to to make. He is that great. Have you ever noticed how how certain professional people, you know, they often put signs up around the office telling you uh, their qualifications? 
You go to the doctor, the dentist, the solicitor. Heck, even my car mechanic does it. There's, significant, there's certificates of stuff hanging around the office. And I reckon they do it, don't you think? Because they want us to feel confident about them. It's nice to know that our car mechanic is specifically trained in servicing Commodore transmissions. I feel okay about leaving the old family wagon with him. Now, friends, a section like this in Acts is here to help us feel okay about leaving our life with the risen Christ. It's as if these verses are hanging up signs all over the room showing us that he's qualified to look after you. You do know that, don't you? He knows what he's doing. There's no one more powerful than him. There's no one with more authority there than him. There is quite simply no one else greater than he for in whom you can trust your life to. And friends, if you're here and you have trusted him with your life, you are in a very safe place. And look, life may well throw you some difficulties, but there is nothing that Jesus cannot get us through. He is the risen Christ, and his power and his authority is staggering. How about I pray? Father, we're sorry for the times that we just don't see the greatness of your son with the clarity that we really ought to. Uh, Father, up front we want to say that we're sorry for the times that we just don't do what Jesus tells us to do, that we're disobedient to him and that, that we just don't trust him. We don't trust your goodness. Father, please help us to see Jesus just so clearly through your word and with the help of your spirit. Help us to just see Jesus so clearly that we, know, that we will know that there was no one better, no one more capable that we can give our lives to. Father, thank you for the risen Christ. Thank you that we have forgiveness in his name. Thank you that through him you have secured an eternal safety for us. And Father, thank you for reminding us tonight just how powerful, just how much authority your risen son actually does have. Help us to live it out. Amen.